Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Sustainable E-Commerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand sustainably. I'm your host, Giles Smith, and today I'm joined by Peter Peeney, founder of The Swag. Through The Swag, Peter is on a mission to reduce our household food waste as well as single-use plastics in the kitchen. As we discuss her journey to creating The Swag, she uncovers some inconvenient truths about how some sustainable fabrics are made and how a cigarette lighter became an essential accessory for product sample evaluation. More recently, Peter's team are killing it in regards to audience building on social media, specifically Instagram and Facebook. And she generously shares her tips on finding and working with some great agency partners. That's a topic near and dear to my heart as a former agency owner. And I know it's one that causes many founders a great deal of anxiety. I loved chatting with Peter. So let me share that with you now. Peter Peeney, welcome to the show. Thank you, Giles, and thank you for having me. Oh, I am, I am so excited to have, have you join me today, Peter. I, I love the whole story that's wrapped around the swag brand and all the things that you've got on your website. And there's such a wealth of information on your site as well for any brands, you know, looking to figure out how to do this sustainability thing. But before we get into it, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Peter. How did you come to start The Swag and what's The Swag all about? Well, The Swag is all about treading lightly on the planet and using what you have to the best of your ability, similar to once a jolly swagman who were our Aussie um, foot, footmen that were off in the exploring the outback with their um, swag on their back and inside their swag they had all their worldly possessions and their food rolled up in their bedroll and if they didn't come across a farm where they could do some work then they would roll out their bedroll eat what they had um, within their swag have a good night's sleep under a gum tree then roll it all back up and bundle it back into their swag and on their back and off they went searching for work. And they tread really lightly and, and used everything to the best of their ability and left virtually no impact on, on, on where, they, where they'd been. And so that's what the swag represents. So we've developed a range of products that are um, 100% natural and non-toxic and they're all designed to either help you reduce plastic pollution in your home um, and also food waste is a significant one. So we've got a hero product called the swag, which is the, the, hero, the hero brand. Um, and it um, it keeps your fruit and vegetables fresh for two weeks in the fridge and up to four weeks and is scientifically proven to do so. And it's 100% natural, rewashable, with proper care. They last for, well, I've had mine for eight years now. So um, every year they're saving me a lot of money. So we're all about living very sustainably. And I guess, um, you know, just just being mindful of the, how much food waste and plastic waste you're you're creating in this world because we we do need to if we're going to make a change to the planet we need to be mindful of that. i love that so the swag basically is kind of the answer to uh floppy coriander and flexible carrots that you get and <laughs> when you when you shop for the week and then you decide not to cook something you were going to and then you try to go back next week to use those things and they kind of pass their best yeah so i was a frustrated mother who was working full time and i'd often come home to a, to a fridge full of rotting vegetables so that they'd actually turn just overnight or if I had a night off uh, for instance a night off cooking and we went out to dinner because I was too exhausted to cook or ordered some takeaway then we would get 
the next night you'd just open up and there'd be these rotting fruit and vegetables and I and I knew that there had to be a better way and having been brought up sustainably on acreage where we were we had a big vegetable garden we had lots of animals we had horses and chickens and goats and everything that you can imagine we even had a pet wombat called Norman no, I love it pet wombat that's 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 quite a claim to fame I didn't, I've never met anyone that's had a pet wombat before so that's a, that's a first one on me <laughs> it was amazing um and so we had this huge veggie garden we had a massive worm farm as well which my parents were worm agents at the time so that was like 30 something years ago so they were ahead of their time and we literally had no garbage service so if anything brought into the house we were responsible for disposing of it and we composted a lot we had a bottle dump that you drove your bottles and cans to and then the rest was had to be dealt with within the home and so we were feeding the chickens the you know the food waste we were you know composting with with um, cardboards and 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 fabrics and stuff so we we really had very little waste and I think it was that childhood the way I grew up as a child just seeing how little we had that we were taking to the bottle dump for instance that as an adult when I started seeing all this food waste going out in plastic bags I just knew it, it just was a monkey on my shoulder I knew there had to be a better way and I kind of made it my my mission to to work out a solution around yeah it. I, I love that so the swag essentially is, is kind of like a a double whammy in a way it's it's extending the life of the produce that you you're bringing home but it's also mm-hmm. stopping people or allowing people to not have to wrap things in in sort of single-use plastics and Ziploc bags and and all that sort of stuff right so it's kind of we're kind of serving you know killing two birds with one stone here absolutely and we actually find that people that may not necessarily be interested in living plastic free once they start using the swag and they have had this incredible experience every time they open up their swags and they see these beautiful happy veg- veggies and fruits smiling back at them and it's lasting for so long and they see how much money they're saving then they start to get this feeling of oh how else can what this feels good to do this and yeah. so then they start to look at other ways around the home where they can can reduce plastic and one of the very first steps of that is people then go oh well I don't need a a, a garbage bin a plastic um, bag in the garbage bin I'm just going to put it loose into the into the bin and have all the bits and pieces and then into you know the main um, wheelie bin and so you've got no plastic bags containing more plastic or more paper or whatever and that enables some of that to break down in in the in the ground all of that you know organic sort of stuff like cardboard and whatnot can break down and isn't trapped in plastic for a thousand years mm. so yeah it is definitely it sets people on a pathway of, of thinking more confident consciously about um plastic in there what a brilliant piece of positioning that is one of the things i really really love about the swag as a concept is that it's not just made from sustainable materials and we're going we're to come to you know the materials choice and material science in a second because i think that's a fascinating journey itself but you're really solving a genuine problem here which everybody has and i love i love that because because that's the essence of great product creativity so congratulations, first of all, on doing that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Now, let's get into, because I, I, I can't wait to chat about this, uh, <laughs> your, your journey to actually making this product has taken you on lots of different twists and turns, and you've learned a pile of things around materiality and the truth behind things like certified organic cotton versus other things. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey, and w- where did you end up with it all? Sure. Well, 
you know, uh, it started at the very start when I had the concept of the swag, I started ringing all these different um, sort of fabric houses, really, that, that were big, big fabric houses and well-known. So I researched all of those around Australia and I started speaking to those, uh, the people within the fabric houses and I just said to them, what's the safest material that you have to put up against your food? And I'm, and I'm so glad I asked that question. It was an open-ended question and I wasn't attached to the answer. I was really just on a fact-finding mission because I genuinely wanted to find the best fabric to have up against your food. And 100% of them came back and said cotton. And then it got me wondering, well, why aren't they saying bamboo? Why aren't they saying hemp? They're these great, you know, new eco fabrics that, you know, are saving the world. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? And then I started researching through bamboo and hemp and seeing that um, there was a lot of chemical processing that had to turn the, a stick or, you know, if you think about it, bamboo is an it is an eco and a sustainable product for flooring or wooden, anything wood, but to turn something that's so hard into a soft, fluffy fabric, it's got to be wood chipped and then put through an acid slime bath, and which may, is a highly carcinogenic process. And you can literally put anything through this acid slime bath and create anything out the back end of it. And I think Jamie Oliver won a court case with McDonald's that was putting the the teeth and bones and hooves and hair of um, beef through this a similar type concoction and then it came out with a beef patty at the end and they called it 100% beef and put it on the on the burgers and Jamie Oliver won a case in America against um, McDonald's for doing that so that just shows you how you can literally put anything in and out but out comes whatever you want and that was you know, a lot of the properties of bamboo and hemp at the time were they were antibacterial, and the reason they were antibacterial is like plastic, it was toxic. So nothing is going to grow on it, no mold or whatever is going to grow on it because you know it's toxic. So it's not something that you want to up against your food. There are people that are starting just now to do hemp and bamboo with a very slow natural process where they wood chip it and they but it's very, very expensive and it's very time-consuming and, and, you know, there's lots of difficulties around doing that um, and doing it cost-effectively. So, But for me, it's just cotton all the way because it's a bowl. It, you know, if you see it on the plant, you pull it and it's spun. So there's no processing really. It's just spun into what we need and what we use. So it, it makes sense that it's the safest thing to have up against your food. 100%. You know, and obviously we're talking about food-grade material here, not necessarily clothing or, you know, making sheets out of it or any of that sort of stuff. We are talking about stuff that's right next to something you're going to ingest. And so the standards by which you have to look at that are much, much higher. So I appreciate you saying that. So then even within the space of organic cotton, you've got some interesting stories there around, you know, let's say dubious practices around certification that you've uncovered. And, yeah. and, and then you've ended up, uh, I think, using unbleached seeded cotton. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so tell us about what that actually is. So it's called grey cotton and it's basically cotton. It's literally how it's come off the plant. So there's no processing, there's no bleaching or dyeing or anything. It's literally, so it's got the little flecks in it. It's got, it's, it's not a white cotton. It's, it's, a, it's like a beige. And the, there's little flecks of seeding that you see and you can actually see them in your bags. You can actually see them. Sometimes they can get quite thick, the seeding. So we haven't done any processing. We've got, it's cotton at its, at its, at its rawest, essentially. But when we were looking around and 
obviously we really wanted to look at organic cotton and we'd landed on, um, I'd, I'd flown over to India and, and met with five manufacturers and, and that was a fascinating process in itself because at this point I knew that I wanted to use cotton. It was, it was decided. And then when I went around to all these different manufacturers who had mocked up samples for me, then I would sit down and talk and we'd go through the samples and, and just look at the stitching and, and I'd look at the factory as well. That was really critical for me to go there to be able to see the conditions and make sure that I can check all the certifications and then went away and did my homework. But I could also see the people that were working there and the conditions that they were in. And one of the things I learned to do was actually cut the cotton cut the bag up that they'd given me and with my lighter, which I took to every meeting, <laughs> I'd light the cotton, the, all, all layers, and I'd watch how the cotton um, shriveled back or how it smoked. And I became really, really like expert at seeing, because sometimes in India, in, in all countries, unfortunately, they do lace in some synthetics into cottons to just give it some extra flex or durability or whatever. So you they'll say it's 100% cotton. You think it is, but it's not until you burn it that you can actually see whether there are any um, synthetics that are sort of somehow woven within it. But so what's the top tip there, Peter? What, what does it look like? If you, if you burn something, what's the difference in what you're going to see or experience? Yeah, well, with, um, when you burn something that's natural, you're going to see an ash and a wood smoke. And when you burn something that's got a synthetic, you're going to see it shrivel back on itself and shrink and there's a bit more of a toxic smell. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you, can, you can basically see it shrivel back like you would if you, if you put plastic, um, a flame up towards plastic. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I, I did all that and then found this amazing um, manufacturer who, who is a, a female-run, led and owned factory and, um, and she was, you know, she is, I should say, uh, super, super switched on. And we started talking about organic and going down that pathway. And, and she basically educated me from about what's going on in the organic system in India, being a developing country and farmers needing to leave their land pesticide free for five years. And the, the farming communities are really sort of just up against each other. So there's lots of spray and leaching through the soil that really um, makes it really difficult for farmers, for one farmer that's sort of wedged in the middle of other farms to then be able to claim organic. Um, and plus just how do they leave their, their land pesticide free for five years? You know, where do they need to have the income and resources to be able to do that? It's very few and far between in India. So what was happening was that people were just selling their organic certification to smaller farmers. So it wasn't wasn't organic. So mm. I could have I could have chosen and a lot of certifications have come in since then. And we we have found a, a got certified manufacturer. And so, um, and we've done all the checking and we've gone through, all, done all our due diligence and we've started all our organic range. I think definitely there is a place for organic. However, I didn't want to say something was organic without knowing 100% and having that certification. And, and at that stage, there wasn't, there wasn't much certification happening. So, so I chose unbleached, unseeded cotton, which is cotton that's rawest. And to be honest, for me, it's 
it's it's a fantastic product. It's it's completely Australian standard, lab tested, and completely non toxic. None no nasties in there. So yeah, it's as natural as you as you can get. That's awesome. And what a journey! What how much legwork you've done to come to a to a, a really natural beautifully pure product i think you know congratulations on on doing all that hard work up front i'm sure it's i'm sure it's paying off in the in the final product but you mentioned australian standards there so i'm sure people are thinking to themselves well why you know we have brilliant cotton farmers here in australia why aren't you using um cotton grown here in australia yes i did i originally i reached out and that's where i started i got all my samples and everything for cotton here but it actually all of our cotton grown here gets sent off to india and china for it to be milled and then it's bought back. So tried to manufacture desperately in Australia and we are getting closer to, you know, looking at to having some solutions around manufacturing onshore, which would be my dream, to be honest, mm. using Australian cotton. But we literally, I couldn't, my first order would have taken a year for me to get. So because we just don't have any cut and sew places in volume to do the volume that I required. We've got lots of cut and sew that are just, you know, one or two people that are doing sort of boutique designer labels, mm. but not one factory that I could go to and have, you know, a big factory of people, you know, sewing. So um, it had to go offshore. So it made sense if you're manufacturing in India to just get the cotton that's either Australian cotton or Chinese or, or what the vast majority it obviously is from India. But um, otherwise we would have been just buying back the cut cotton to go back to India after it's been milled. So it would have been, you know, three times the the, the global, you know, um, carbon footprint. It's a really interesting challenge, isn't it? Because we all know that we want to make locally to try and reduce the carbon footprint of logistics and all the rest of it on the on the upstream part of the supply chain but then when you start to unpick it you realize well hang on it's coming from here it's going over there it's coming back again but that's how it has to be and and the other part of that i'm sure which is really interesting to surface up what you've just said as well is that the reality is the the manufacturing infrastructure in australia just isn't here to be able to do what you're doing i mean nobody no, no brand could survive a 12-month lead cycle to you know for their next batch of things it's, it's not possible so um so it's, it's hard as much as we would like to it's you know some of the things just sense a challenge so have you seen then that there's there's been w- with this sort of resurgence in sustainable demand have you seen some larger scale manufacturing opportunities start to build up in australia is that what's happening or have you found another way to do all this well my original idea which I've had for for years and we we started to engage until COVID hit was you know sort of a I I hate saying work for the doll but it is a a scheme like that in in regional areas where there's high unemployment I don't see why we can't set up factories where we can teach people young people that don't have employment a skill give them the confidence you know get them involved in in the product I think there's a great opportunity there but there's a big shift in businesses wanting to get manufacturing back onto onto Australian shore, um, and there's some um, um, big players in the market that are really seriously talking about it. So we've heard we've heard some some good news recently, um, and it could be something that we could capitalise on in the not so distant future where we bring manufacturing of the swag onto Australian shores mm. using Australian cotton, which would be just holy grail really it's great to hear and and i hope that that pans out so so one of the things i've I've noticed about the swag is that you've been very effective at building that audience right you've got tens of thousands of followers across the meta platform both um insta and, and 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 facebook 
what, what have you done to generate that that level of momentum over the years? What what do you think is 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 the is the defining strategy you've used that's worked best? Oh, I think well, firstly, early on, I didn't do much, <laughs> so I think you know, I, I I was late to the party in terms of social media, but that's okay because I was refining my messaging and I was really understanding my customers. I was out in front of them, you know, doing trade shows and market stalls and, you know, trying to, and, and talking to people about it because that's honestly that you can't, you can't get any better insights than that. Um, and that really, I think, has, has shaped a lot of the answers to the questions that I knew that were coming. So when we got onto a public platform and started becoming um, increasing our profile, we had all the right answers up front. But I think the, the critical thing for us is user-generated content has been really a huge selling point, just having people in their kitchen just talking about their, their, their experience and, and word of mouth, whether it be, you know, a couple of people sitting around a, you know, barbecue and then, you know, someone starts mentioning swag because they do. People mention the swag all the time. But this amazing product keeps everything fresh. They take people into their kitchen and show them in the crisper of their fridge. And we get a huge amount from monitoring on our website of people coming from a, a family or friend recommendation. But I guess you've got that magnified in the social media sense. And that's what user-generated content does. It's just it's like a, a personal recommendation when it's not coming from us, it's coming from one of our legitimate customers who's just posting. Um, and people do. Funnily enough, that's what we found has really helped us build um, new customers and build our profile has been user-generated content and just that loyalty. But that all comes with the, the hard work that we've done to create a product that is, is you know, honest and transparent yeah. and, and trying to do the best that we can in a, in a crazy world. User-generated content is a massive thing in general, in general for all brands. Are there things that you particularly do to encourage that or does that just happen naturally for you? I mean, do you ask customers for it? Do you, do you challenge them with engagement in social media to give you user-generated content? Yeah, we, a lot of it was just they did it for us. So they were just sharing, you know, they have a they have a little following of eco-minded people and they'd say, hey, I've got this new product. And then we would ask them, can we can we take that so and use that, you know, in an ad or something like that? Mm. And that worked really powerfully for us. And every time people are, yeah, sure. And we're obviously going to credit who they are, who who generated the content for us. Um, so yeah, that was really critical. Also, I think um Obviously, as we went global, having um, our ManyChat swag got on the our home pages to answer questions has been really critical because there are a lot of questions people have. They question the sizing or they want to know where it's made is a really big question that we get asked all the time. Um, people are sensitive to where things are made and mm. they love it when they hear it's made in India. So, um, so yeah, we, we get a lot of questions on and, and answering questions answering people's questions immediately in a timely fashion is really critical as well while they're while they're thinking about it if they get an answer back then it often they'll ask more questions and then they're, they're really engaged in the brand they get the sense that we are a brand that that really cares about making sure that they've got all the information they need to make a informed purchase and also continue using our products and, and have the support that they need yeah that's really interesting. You mentioned ManyChat and and uh, the messenger bot there that you've that you've developed, which is 
not unusual, but it's actually fairly unusual in the Australian sense. And, and I don't know that there's many sustainable brands using um, using a chatbot at the, at the moment. Can, for anyone that doesn't know what that is, can you just give us a few words explanation about what that does for you and, and what results you've had from it? Well, it's more about um, giving people the information they need at the point of purchase. And if, you know, especially in terms of our team being switched off and, and asleep, tucked in our beds, and where we've got our American our website working and our, and our American friends are asking questions or people in the UK or whatever, then, then we've got this little, little bot that's working for us to answer those critical questions that we know um, are the main critical questions. And then you can train your bot. So, um, over time, when you see trends happening of more messages, you, you can actually train your bot. I don't do that. <laughs> My team does that. But <laughs> so don't ask me how to do that. But it really is it's being able to, you know, people want answers immediately. And if, if they don't get that answer and they and they walk away from or shut down your site and walk away, then you've lost lost a sale. Yeah, that, that's that's so true. I mean, I, I know that I mean, having been to many managed app conferences over the years and messenger marketing conferences, I can tell you that the that the philosophy around this is that if you can provide live chat on the site that supports not just in hours, but outside hours as well, you'll probably see something like a 30% lift in sales, which is yeah. not to be sniffed at considering it's a very low cost way to automate some of your customer service now i'm not i'm not saying by any stretch of imagination that everyone should automate their customer service i'm just saying this is an extra level that you can add on to having real people behind the business and so i think what you've done is absolutely brilliant it's very very smart and it allows people to engage with the brand and get the answers they need when you guys are asleep which is which is obviously brilliant yeah, exactly. So I think we're coming to the end of our of our time here, which makes me very sad, Peter. I've I've, <laughs> I've really I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation. But if I can close off, what do you think? If you were starting again today with with the swag, is there anything you would do differently? Is there any is there any sensible shortcuts that you would take to building your brand now that you know what you know? I think the big thing that I often kick myself over is I didn't align myself with the best of the best I got a lot of shady businesses doing social media or website design or whatever and I think yeah it's hard because you don't know what you don't know Mm. and so here I was working full-time and this was going to be a little bit of a side hustle I just didn't realize that pain point of food waste was going to be as huge and it was going to take off as much, but it did. So that's pretty exciting. So you don't know that. And then it was a bit of a scramble and I was just grabbing anyone to do, to help me with social media because I was still working full time. And I think at that point I should have really aligned myself with and and invested a little bit more money in, you know, really blue chip um, companies that I could align myself with. I think that would have made a big difference to momentum and growth. Okay, so I have to ask a follow-up question now, obviously, because you've just opened the door to such a brilliant insight. Um, how how do you go about selecting those people? You say blue chip, but there's blue chip and blue chip. I mean, you could go to Ogilvy's and pay a million dollars, right? Or there's, there's specialist people. Who who are you really talking about here? Yeah, so, yeah, not I, not definitely not an, uh, you know, an Ogilvy's or, or, you know, an OMD or anything like that. Absolutely not. But there are small little media um, agencies that are little grassroots ones that are a full service agency that you can go in and they'll have a, they'll have a little bit of everything and that's a great place to start. But I'd be looking at 
definitely what their client retention rate is. I'd be looking very closely at, you know, making sure that when they sign on, there's very specific KPIs in terms of the content that they're going to do or what they're going to do and how much they're going to do. So have that really mapped out. And that was my, I, I was completely unknown to that world. And I just took, I signed contracts and even with SEO, big companies that locked me, that wanted to lock me in for two and a half thousand dollars a month and literally would do nothing. And I just, I had a bad experience and I started to research. If you look at the reviews, you can see, you know, a lot of what um, when things haven't been delivered that have been promised. And I think that's the hardest thing as a small business that they sometimes don't take you so seriously. They just think, oh, here we go. We're just doing a bit, a bit here and a bit there. But, you know, that's really putting a stop on your momentum mm. potentially. And I was lucky to have a brand that took off regardless of, of what was going on in the back. We really did because it was largely word of mouth. And that's why I think, you know, you've got to always make sure that your product is true and you present it truthfully. You don't embellish. You really, you know, just very factual about it because people love it when they buy a product and everything does what it says without over-exaggerating. Or... But, yeah, so just doing your due diligence and making sure that they, they're a reputable agency, speaking to people and not locking into a year contract if they don't, if they, if within three months you should be able to exit if they're not getting the, the traction that you think that they should. Yeah. So, but also, you know, speak to some of their customers and get some customer experience. It's really critical because it can, you know, it's, it's a huge stress starting your own business. And if you've got a, a digital marketing team that you trust, then you are miles ahead of your competitors. Well, I would love to spend another hour talking to you about Facebook <laughs> and advertising and all that sort of stuff, but we don't have time. So, so Peter, where can people get your brilliant products? So you can jump on to theswag.com.au and you'll see our full range of, of waste and plastic-free living products and they'll save you a bunch of money and also save the planet. I love that. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for spending time and sharing your enormous wisdom on everything from material science through to engaging audiences today. I really appreciate it. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks, Giles. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Back to Giles again, just to sum up some of my top takeouts from chatting with Peter. The first one is that if you're working with organic cotton, be aware that factories often do weave in synthetic fibers for durability and stretchiness and other properties of the material, even when they claim it to be 100% pure. While it might generate some horrified faces among your factory staff, burning a small section of it to see how it reacts seems like a fast effective and of course free way to test your samples i enjoyed peter's comments towards the end there about choosing an agency as an entrepreneur it's simply not possible to do everything yourself and the digital media platforms are evolving and updating at such a rapid pace that really only agencies who are constantly at the coalface can keep up in fact if you're scaling i would say that finding an agency to help you is probably one of the key strategic challenges that should be on your agenda the industry is not regulated and there are honestly heaps of terrible agencies who take your money and do very little in return. On the flip side, picking the right agency can see your business literally burst beyond what you thought was possible. In fact, now that I think about it, this might be a great topic for a future show. So let me know if you'd like to learn more about that. Lastly, Peter's team has implemented a tool called ManyChat to help her automate messenger conversations, which creates a really dynamic solution to 24-7 customer support. While Peter's focus has been enabling 
US and UK customers to get the answers they need. The reality is many of your customers will be shopping online after your traditional daytime hours. So having a messenger channel that looks after them will without doubt help your conversion rate for domestic customers too. If you're interested in learning more about that, I'll drop a link to it at the end of the show notes page.